The Be Here Now Network invites you to join Jack Kornfield, Tara Brock, and some of today's leading mindfulness meditation instructors for a two-year mindfulness meditation teacher certification program. Get the training you need to guide others in their journey with a powerful online training course and in-person teaching events. To learn more, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com slash GetCertified. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Ramdas Here and Now, a podcast that's hosted by myself, Raghu Marcus, and welcome back. In all of the many, many topics that we've had as part of our podcasts going back, boy, it's a couple of years now, and we have never represented one particular very important topic for Ramdas and what he's given and shared, and that's around service. And although people know, and he certainly refers to it uh, in terms of the kind of work he did with Seva, curing blindness in the world, and he had a, a Hanuman Foundation, uh, so he and and many other organizations. So he has talked a lot and referred a lot to service, that word, service, right, which is pretty straightforward. This particular, then he did a series uh, based around uh, the idea that he was putting to, uh, together a book, and that book's How Can I Help? And I guess these talks were part of developing the material for the book and just fleshing it out the way that he he would go into stuff and then you know it would get uh, fleshed out so uh, and transcribed and so on so this is about i love helping out no big thing service no you know not any self-consciousness helping out each of us has in us this is ramdas a psychic DNA memory of the quality of the Sat Yuga. This is the, through the Hindu system of ages, and this is the age of purity the, the, that he's referring to, Sat Yuga, where people generally and naturally help each other. It's, they just have a natural outflowing of, a healthy, of the healthy human heart. So this is what we're talking about, getting, uh, uh, that's what he's talking about, and it's of, uh, I'm really, uh, David and Silver and I have talked about this on Mind Rolling, just, you know, how to deal with really being of, of help, not the big get into service thing, which implies, especially in our culture, a lot of other stuff. So helping out, we're, we are living in the Kali Yuga not the Sat Yuga, where truth does not abound, but isolation, fear, separateness, paranoia is prevalent. But still, there are moments and times when there is a natural expression of helping each other. And of course, we see this all the time in the most simple ways. So further on, he talks about, so this is establishing basically how do we get back to our basic human goodness, kindness, as His Holiness the Dalai Lama would say? And it is our natural birthright. It is in our DNA. And, and he, relating this to the Sat Yuga, the Age of Purity, I think is really uh, cute. <laughs> because I have no idea about any of the Yugas, but just the uh, symbolism of this uh, is fantastic. Um, Let's see. This, uh, so, uh, again, many things here are, are developed rel relative to getting back to that complete and absolute natural outflowing of healthy human heart. And one of these things is to, to go through and transform is this business around who is us and who is them. 
right? And this is this goes on day to day. The easiest examples are politicians. Uh, we see. I I mean. They're the easiest to to react to, you know, when some one of them says, "No, we want we don't want any government uh, money going to food stamps." You know, we want that to end, and so that ultimate who is us and who is them. The ultimate alienation, though, and this this uh, I enjoyed this more than anything in this whole lecture because I had never thought of this this way. But here's the ultimate alienation. Thinking about yourself all the time, so you become an object to yourself. You can't even help yourself. <laughs> I mean, this is beautiful. We walk around, and and it's true. You 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 objectify your whole day. I'm going to do this now. You're going to go there, or however it is that you talk to yourself. We talk to ourselves, and. Uh, there becomes a subject, object, us and them, because some of the times there's definitely a them in terms of the judgment of the things that we do. So this is brilliant. Uh, oh, and here's here's a great little section to this where uh, he gives different examples of people doing things with all the right intentions of being great helpers and doing good, and ends up in, you know, a very uh, <laughs> tough situation. I mean, one of them has kittens, one of these stories. Okay, I don't even know if I want to say it. You know, it's terrible. Uh, but it, oh, so the example is, and, and of course, this is uh, an example he has talked about before. And uh, it's the story of him writing this book, How Can I Help? And he went to a cabin in the woods. Guy who owned the cabin sent over the carpenter because there's some work needed to be done in the house. And Ramdas, who completely wanted to just be alone, uh, of course ran into the carpenter who said, I love you and your books, and obviously was giving him a vibe that he wanted to hang out with him. And, uh, and so, uh, as Ramdas said, I don't know if he said it quite this way, but he shined him on so you know, he could be uh, alone in writing this book. So some days went by, and the who, the guy, the carpenter who was supposed to come back, didn't come back. And uh, Ramdas asked the owner of the house what was up, and the guy committed suicide. If you can only imagine, and and Ramdas is thinking to himself, of course, I was writing a book. How can I help? And meanwhile, shining on somebody a little bit because I needed to get to the book. So wrong-headed, idiot uh, kind of calculation. Um, Trungpa Rinpoche had a, a great uh, thing called idiot compassion. Uh, this isn't particularly an example of that. This is just uh, absolutely being, uh, you know, Ram Dass in that moment being not aware. And uh, this other story, though, uh, is of our... A lovely uh, person who manages all the media on uh, love uh, at Love Server Remember on Ramdas.org, Rachel Fisher, and Rachel was on the way to work one day, which is with me here, and uh, noticed a bird, a baby bird, was floundering around. Picked it up, saved it. Uh, so she was thinking, "I'm going to save this bird," and then uh, brought the bird in, and I don't know, maybe. There was a suggestion, go look on the net, Google up what's the right thing to do, or how do you help a little baby bird that seems to be in trouble. And the, and the net said, and Google said, go and put it back. It should not come out of its natural environment. In other words, just let nature take its course. Uh, because I, I don't think that particularly meant leave the bird alone and it'll be better. So they took the bird back, or she took the bird back, and uh, next day came back uh, again to work, and of course the bird was dead. So uh, th that's what one of uh, Ramdas's stories is about uh, also, uh, which I won't get into because you're going to hear it in a minute, and you get the idea that uh, we do things completely uh, with good intention, but not 
uh, a hell of a lot of awareness in sometimes and in, in, in any moment. And that's what uh, Trungpa Rinpoche was talking about, idiot compassion. Also, a uh, couple of, this is a good one, living in the Sat Yuga and our being in the Kali Yuga, the fact that we took an incarnation in this particular age, that's the way th the the pure age, the Sat Yuga, will come back. True so social action then. You absolutely, uh, you have this remembered DNA and we, we have uh, a chance to remember it more and act on it uh, in a natural way. And that, of course, is the greatest social action I think we can take. If you want to live in a peaceful world, you damn well better be peaceful. <laughs> if you are full of anger, you'll not bring about much peace. And we talk about that all the time. The qualities in yourself determine what qualities are in the world. And that is as as close as you can get to the essence of getting on the path of helping anybody. And uh, this is a great lecture, helping out. It's part of a whole series, which we're just finding out on Ramdas.org Media Library. You're seeing more stuff on Ramdas.org. I, I think all of you, if you go to Ramdas.org, if you haven't been to the Media Library, there's an incredible amount of new stuff that's been going up because this Media Library, we finally were able to get into it and digitize and describe and, and get it together and... We're pretty happy about that, and that's due to the support of many of you, all of you, in terms of just uh, wishing the best. And then a good part of you as well have been helping us uh, financially so that we're able to do this. And uh, we still got a ways to go, so we're happy, really, to con please do continue that support. And here is Ramdas, here and now. In a way, it keeps striking us as some uh, as rather bizarre as we're doing this book that we are bringing into self-consciousness a relationship between human beings which really has a very spontaneous and um, innocent outpouring of generosity base that isn't self-conscious at all. And it works best when it isn't self-conscious, and yet here we are making everybody very self-conscious about helping. And uh, But if you can see what the process is, it's like going from innocence and then the loss of innocence and then bringing the whole thing into self-consciousness in order to see through it, in order to become innocent again you could see that sequence. But I think that each of us has in us um, a kind of a psychic DNA memory of that quality of what in Hinduism is called the Sat Yuga. It's the time when people just general, genuinely and naturally help each other. I mean, somebody said, I don't have time to volunteer, I'm too busy helping. You know, I'm too busy helping my neighbors. And then we called it being neighborly, or being part of the community. It's the quality that was part of barn raising, of bringing chicken soup. And it, it's a kind of a natural outflowing of a healthy human heart. And... Um, we all remember those times somewhere in ourselves where helping was a very spontaneous, generous, natural quality, along with things like uh, with other qualities, like truth. I had that experience of that feeling. I'll tell you an interesting story. I've told this before about I was... Um, a representative of the hippie community of San Francisco that went to meet with the Hopi elders to arrange a Hopi hippie be-in in Grand Canyon, okay, at the base of Grand Canyon. This was, as you can imagine, in the 60s. And um, I lived in a big school bus, and uh, we all went there, and I ended up being the spokesman for the hippies 
And I met with the elders, and there was a kitchen table in a, an adobe building. Um, and there were four chairs in which the four elders sat, and there were no more chairs in the room, so I sort of sat on the floor opposite them, or kneeled on the floor opposite them. And so I could look under the table and over it, and under the table, the youngest of them was 65, and they went up to 110. And the youngest of them, or they all had their hands on their knees, and their hands, I could see their hands, and they all had lots of turquoise on. Their hands looked like roots in the earth, and they just sat there. I mean, there was something so absolutely connected about their beings. And the spokesman was a 65-year-old fellow, and he was telling me about the difficulties they'd had with the white persons. And he described a situation in which uh, one of the Braves had been involved in an automobile accident with a, uh, a truck from the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And the next day, the state police had found a liquor bottle. The, the Bureau of Indian Affairs car was driving over the yellow line was at fault. But the next day they found a liquor bottle in the gully and they said that the young brave had been drinking. And this fellow who was 60 some odd was across from me and telling me the story and he said, we called the young man and we asked him and he said he had not been drinking. And then he looked at me and he just said very simply, and he speaks truth. And it's interesting what went through me at that moment. A kind of a, a chill of primordial memory of a time when people just spoke truth. It's just the way you did it. You just said what was. And me having grown up in a family of lawyers, <laughs> although there are new looks in law, but my family doesn't represent them. And uh, believe me, that was buried deep down, that memory. Well, it's interesting. The Gallup poll says that 52% of the American population, our adult population, are involved in volunteer helping work several hours a week. That's pretty impressive. I mean, you don't, that isn't the image of the American public that is Hollywood's best product. They don't tell that story that well. So a lot of it is going on despite the fact that we may not be living in the Sat Yuga, but rather the Kali Yuga, when truth doesn't abound and when there is a lot of paranoia and distrust and fear and separation and isolation and caughtness in our separateness. But uh, no matter how hard it gets, we all again and again find ourselves in situations where that kind of spontaneous natural helping happens, not unmotivated, as we will talk about later, but along with. For example, let's say you and I rent a, um, a place out at the ocean or up in the mountains, say in Long Island or up in the Poconos or somewhere, and we have it for two weeks, and at the end of six of us, and at the end of two weeks, we are cleaning it up to leave. And somebody says, I'll do the kitchen, and somebody says, I'll do the bathroom, and so on. But we want to get going before the heavy traffic. So if I finish the kitchen, I probably won't say, well, I did my part, because I want to get out of there too, and I'll go and help in the bathroom. And those kind of, that just that feeling of, you need something? Sure, let me. The question is, where are we all going? Are we beating traffic or not? And who's us, as we will explore? 
But I'm pointing out that we do have these experiences over and over again of these just very natural ways of helping each other. But when a helping problem starts to stick in us, it is extremely easy to focus on that and see helping as a real uh, heavy issue and forget the kind of 52% that are doing it. Now, the reason that this book came about and this week comes about is because uh, I'm involved in two organizations, the Hanuman Foundation and the Seva Foundation, and uh, both of them are service organizations. And we get uh, many, many letters from people who say, I would like to help. How can I help? What can I do to help? I would like to help people. What am I going to do? And I began to sense from just going around the country so much the numbers of people that had that feeling in them of feeling that things are coming a little unglued and I'd like to do something, but I don't know what to do or how to do it or where to get started or how to get over the inertia that is involved. Because in the course of growing up, we have started to get caught more and more in our separateness. And if you just imagine starting out as tribes without much ego, separate egoness, mostly identity with a large group, and then watch it come down until it comes down into family, you say that's us and everybody else is them. Uncle, what's his name, is just on the edge. <laughs> See, and then you come in one clop closer and you say, well, I mean my immediate family is us, but you've got to watch out for them. And then you get to the point where you say, well, the people of my generation, my partner, or us kids are us. And the folks are them, or the kids are them, the generational us them. And then you get to say, well, even with my partner, I mean, uh, he or she is him or her, and I'm me. And that's getting down to the sort of almost ultimate alienation. See, it's me and them. And finally, the ultimate one is where you're thinking about yourself all the time. So you become an object to yourself. You see? So that's the ultimate alienation. I mean, you can't even help yourself because you're estranged. But getting over that barrier between us and them is a very tricky one. And it's been reinforced a great deal. I mean, you don't pick up hitchhikers because it might be dangerous. Because they're them not us. And I live a lot of time in India, and I must say in India people pick up hitchhikers. And you share your car with everybody. And you stay, I drive up here and I'm on the Taconic or the Thruway, and there are many, many people like I am alone in my four-seater car. You know, windows closed or, you know, windows open, listening to the controlling our environment, my environment, without any interference from them. And I think, well, I, this is the ultimate luxury. Or is it the ultimate hell? It's a very interesting one, whether you win or lose, with the power to have privacy. Very interesting. Because a lot of the spontaneous helping that we remember came from the fact that people lived in close and you could smell what they were having for dinner and you could hear the family fights and you could sense the whole quality of life. You were part of it just by the nature of your living. And now you don't have to be. I spend time in a New York apartment and I have no idea who lives on either side of that apartment. And we all stand in the elevator like this. 
Good morning, good morning. And it's incredible to understand what we're breaking through to help another human being. The other day I was sitting in a car and on uh, in New York City on a street and with a friend, and we looked over and it was a very lonely street, and somebody had just broken into a car up the way, and he was in the alley going through the pocketbook, taking out this and that. And he looked at us with absolute impunity. He must have been about 30 feet away. And I went through my mind... Um, do I care enough about property to open the door to confront this gentleman about his acts and the morality of his acts? And I decided that if he was doing it to a person, I would, but not for property. And I just watched him do it. But I have to go through an inner struggle inside about what am I feeling about other people. and property, and so on. And these are some of the dialogues, inner dialogues, we're, we're, we're starting to play with just because of the nature of the society we're ending up in at this moment. Furthermore, there is more disparity between haves and have-nots than ever before. And that creates paranoia. Because what money buys is space and privacy and control of your environment. And the ultimate separate dream is that you can create heaven and still be you. You can control your environment so you can create a heaven right around you and nobody can interfere with it. And when we lived in little villages, if somebody down the street was orphaned, we all were had to deal with the child who was orphaned right there because we lived right there and there was the child and nothing was going to go away. But now we have a global village to consider. And we have the fact that a baby is dying every 45 seconds of malnutrition. And... Is that really a village or isn't it? The media make evidence so much suffering everywhere in the world because that's news. Floods and tornadoes and violence and terrorism and just item after item after item. What does it do to you? How does it inure you to the nature of the immediacy of the suffering? So, when I think about what you and I are doing, we are remembering the Sat Yuga. We're remembering a time when helping is. When we are helped just by the nature of our being. When it's not a big deal, will I help or won't I, should I, can I. You just do it if it's called for. And we are looking at what is now, and then we are opening ourselves to create what we know is possible with what is now. In other words, living in the Sat Yuga in our being in the Kali Yuga. Because that's the way the Sat Yuga comes back. If you want to be in a peaceful world, you damn well better be peaceful. Because if you're full of anger, you're not going to bring about much peace. So the qualities in yourself determine what qualities are in the world. <clears throat> and I know for myself that sometimes I help and sometimes I don't. Sometimes I'm driving down the street and I stop for somebody, sometimes I don't. <clears throat> sometimes the telephone rings and I pick it up and I say I'm busy and sometimes I say, oh yeah, tell me about it. Some letters I read and I answer immediately, other letters sit in the pile. We're all on the good guy mailing list. I'm sure everybody in this room is on the good guy mailing list. And every week, see, I mean, it's, dear D Mr. Doss. <laughs> um, 
And I don't even know where to begin. I mean, you take your checkbook and your pen in hand. Well, is it the whales this week? See, or is it Amnesty International? Or is it Oxfam? Is it a, uh, uh, a democratic hopeful? Somebody that's going to change the system? Where do you begin? Is it your niece that just lost her job? And if you ask me why I do the ones I do, I can't tell you. I don't even care anymore. At some point where I gave up that, because I figured there lies insanity. Um, is a whale more important? You know, how do I know? How do you know? I don't know how to begin. But if we don't solve the nuclear issue, there'll be no tomorrow. But if we don't support the symphony, there'll be no today. And who'd want tomorrow? You and I face some really rich issues about where you start helping and what needs to be helped. I was with my stepmother. We just moved my father and my stepmother to a house in Cohasset, Mass., which is a very... Uh, nice community on the coast, the south shore of Massachusetts. And my stepmother is a very caring person. She grew up in a reasonably poor environment, worked hard all her life. And uh, she likes to help human beings. But the problem is in the town she's living in, nobody needs help. <laughs> because they're living so in such a, a middle-class ghetto that they have excluded all the people by, with property rates, everybody who needs help. And so she's frustrated. She wants to do good, but she can't leave my father to go do good, and there's no good to do. So she's working on a high school scholarship program. It's the best she's got there. So when you start to want to help in this situation, you might first say, well, I have nothing to offer. I mean, you're driving along and you see an accident. And you say, oh, my God, I never took the EMT train. You know, what can I do? You know, Gandhi said, the act you do may, be, may seem very insignificant, but it's very important that you do it. And sometimes all you can do is get out and sit down by the person that's suffering and just be there with them. You can't do what they do on television. Stop the bleeding, do this, do that, check the neck. But you see, the minute you go towards helping, you say, not only have I nothing to offer, but I may hurt somebody. I was with um, Ruth Dennison, who's a wonderful meditation teacher of the European Zaza Gabor variety. And uh, she was describing, um, she was describing how she, she has a place out in the desert and she was out in the desert one day and she came upon a, an opossum on the side of the road that had been um, uh, killed, that had died. And she was looking at it and suddenly she saw that its belly was moving and that in its uh, sack, in its uh, little pocket, were ten little baby opossums. And they were all still alive. So she took the ten little opossums out, and she had them running all over her arms and things. And she had a little bottle of milk, so she didn't have an eyedropper, so she put milk on the tip of her tongue, and they would suck the milk at the tip of her tongue. 
And she was in ecstasy. I mean, the divine mother made manifest, you know. I mean, this is like, what more could you want? You know, you got... And then she ran out of milk. And she had some honey with her. So she stuck honey on her tongue, and they drank, ate the honey. And then as she was watching, one little baby opossum stood up on its hind legs, did a dance, and fell over dead. And then a second little opossum stood up on its hind legs and danced and fell over dead. All ten of little opossums stood up on their hind legs, danced, and fell over dead, because it turns out that honey is not something that they can handle, and they all went into sugar coma and died. Now, poor divine mother. See? Would it have been better? Isn't that an interesting issue? Is it better not to have helped at all? Or does that quality of caring, is that what the universe is about? Can you risk it? Can you risk it? And if you do risk it, if you do open to the suffering around you, mightn't you be overwhelmed by it? I mean, uh, it's very clear to people that are in the helping business that once you open your heart to the needs of others, they got you. It's really hard to go off duty. Well, I've helped enough. Tough. Suffer on. See you later. It's really hard. Really hard. It just gets, sometimes it overwhelms you. The most visual image of overwhelming I got was again from Ruth Dennison and her husband Henry. <clears throat> they were describing, uh, it was Christmas time in Benares in India, which is a city that has a lot of people that are close to dying. They've come there to die in the sacred city and also a lot of beggars because it's part of the tourist circuit and it's part of the spiritual uh pilgrimage circuit and it's good for, and you're in your spiritual pilgrimage to give money to people that are in need. So they hang out along the way. And so uh, Ruth and Henry decided for Christmas to give little packages of dal, of lentils, and a little rice, and uh, just little packages, little Christmas presents. So they made up a couple hundred of these. And they got rickshaws, and they filled the rickshaws with these little things, and they started down through the bazaar, Benares, giving out these things to the sadhus. When they'd find one sort of stuporous, they'd stick one on his loincloth or something. And then they ran out of presents. And by then, the word had spread. And these people started coming towards them. And Henry said, Ruth, just turn around and start to run. Because these beings were coming towards them with a, a look that would have literally ripped them to shreds. And they had created something that they then couldn't control. And they ran, and it took them two and a half blocks to escape the last person. And these were people in their 60s, 50s, I guess, at the time. I was in Goa with a friend, and we were on the beach in Goa doing the things that you do on beaches in Goa. And it was sort of that other form of spirituality. And we were going into town. We were going to get the bus to go in, the last bus to go into the town to get to go out to dinner. So we didn't have any food where we were staying. And just as we were about 150 yards from the bus, we heard the bus coming down the street. We were walking along, and I, I looked over to the side, and there was a tiny kitten about this big, 
that had its arms and legs splayed out, its fur standing up on its back, and it was in clearly a state of uh, terror. And in that second, I saw the whole situation. About life and death and all of it. Just was right there, fully clear. And I said, knowing full well what would then follow, I said to my friend, Peter, look at that. And he looked, and hearts opened, and we calmed the kitten down. But meanwhile, the bus went on to dinner. I knew that was part of the choice. And then we looked to see who's, who might have, whose home the cat came from. And everybody in the neighborhood said they didn't want a cat. And then somebody said that somebody had left three kittens, thrown them down into the gully. And two of them had died. And this was the only one that was left. And they were just waiting for it to die. Because they were living close to subsistence and they had lots of cats and lots of dogs and lots of cows and lots of everything and that was the way things were. Well, we looked to see whether there was a nursing mother because I figured maybe I could buy the services of the nursing mother cat. No, nothing. So we ended up with the kitten back at the room with a medicine dropper and baby formula feeding this baby kitten. Well, day after day, it was clearly very sick and very frightened and it quieted down, but it was still terribly sick. And day after day, we took a closet and put our shirts down in it, which the cat was shitting all over. And we kept feeding it. and It was crying in the middle of the night, so we had to take turns getting up every few hours. And then we were going to leave Goa, but we couldn't leave with the kitten. And we couldn't leave the kitten, so we had to change our plans. And two weeks later, we were waiting for the cat to be strong enough to travel. <laughs> two weeks later, the kitten died. And we had a nice burial. You know, as you're walking down and you see that, do you just say, leaves fall? Death is catching the bus. Do you stop even though you know? Do you just stay open to those feelings and those situations? Or do you close your heart down? Do you somehow get so professional about it all. There's this lovely story about uh, somebody you may know, a man named uh, Milton Friedman. He writes speeches in Washington. He writes speeches sometimes in the White House. And there's another Milton Friedman in Washington, as you probably know, who's an economist, a leading economist. So one day, uh, Milton Friedman picked up the phone and they said, is this Milton Friedman? He said, yes. And they, they said, well, this is a church, a very large church in California, and we wanted your advice. And he said, yes. And they said, well, we have quite a bit of uh, money in our treasury, and we wanted you to suggest some investment. So Milton said, did you consider giving it to the poor? <laughs> At which point, the person from the church said, is this the real Milton Friedman? <laughs> At which point, Milton Friedman said, yes, is this the real church? <laughs> See, you get so busy sometimes, even just... trying to keep efficient and controlled to be able to help that you can't you can't stop to 
to pick up the kitten or to worry about the beggars or the poor or whatever. I was, uh, I took, uh, I house sat a house this winter in order to, um, to write this book about helping with Paul. So I came into the house and settled in, and it was a lovely farm, and I got to know all the animals and got comfortable, and then I was getting ready to write, so I decided to go in town and get a pad of paper and some pens, because I was now going to be a writer. And all that entails, I can be neurotic and walk up and down and take a lot of baths and, you know, look up at the ceiling and stuff. And um, so I went off to get paper and uh, pens. And I was driving into town and I was, uh, I wasn't quite familiar with the territory. I hadn't been there for many years and I didn't quite know which left I was going to take. And I was on a main street and there were cars behind me, I will admit. I was going along, and I came around a bend, and there was a man standing there, thumbing. Well, he might have just been another hitchhiker, except that he had only one leg, crutches. And he was a man in his middle 50s. Now, but I had these people behind me in close, and I hadn't seen them till the last minute, and I didn't know where I was going to turn. And I had to get my pad of paper and my pens to write a book about helping. <laughs> so I didn't stop. And I dreamt about him, I'll tell you. But the Sunday that I was there, the first Sunday I was there, the people that owned the house had not yet gone to India. And we were all hanging out together. And I was getting ready to settle into work that week on Monday. And uh, a fellow came who was going to do some carpentry around the house. And he came in to see me, and he introduced himself, and he said, I just wanted you to know that I'm very happy I'm going to be doing the carpentry here because I've read your book, your books, and I just want to tell you, you, it's meant a lot to me. And he was a very beautiful guy, and he was clearly not only saying that, he was saying, I hope we can hang out together this week. And I started to get that, you know, here I've come to this farm to be alone, and now it's the first day, you know, this guy's going to be doing carpentry every day. So what I did was I emitted some kind of just vibration that says, oh, that's lovely, you know. I mean, I was happy to meet him, but I didn't want to, you hear? And then the fellow whose house it was explained to this young fellow that during the week I needed to be alone and that he could come and do the carpentry on weekends. And he understood perfectly and didn't want to bother me and drove away. It was all very gentle and very understanding, and you can understand how it all was. On Wednesday, he put a shotgun in his mouth and blew his head off. So what's a book of helping worth? It was I so busy with my model of where I thought I was going to do good that I couldn't be open to that moment. You've all had, I'm sure, experiences just like that. And you can, you know, mea culpa yourself. Or you can just, yeah, part of the human condition. But I think that part of what we're learning how to do is have models, which we have as functional models, and then learn how to let go lightly. It's like the rabbi who, for 20 years, he's been coming out of, in this small Polish town, he's been coming out of his house and going to the shul across the, across the uh, village square. And he comes out of his house, 20 years every day he's been doing this, and he meets the Cossack, the policeman, who's heavy. Policeman says, Rabbi, where are you going? Rabbi says, God only knows. The Cossack feels that the rabbi is being flipped and he's not going to have a rabbi being flipped to a Cossack, so he arrests him and takes him to jail.
Rabbi's wife comes down and says, Shmuel, what are you doing? Why are you being sarcastic with the Cossack? He says, I wasn't sarcastic. He asked me where I was going. I said, God only knows. I didn't expect to end up in prison. Just like with a good guy mailing list, you keep wondering if I'm going to help and I want to help more, what am I going to do? Am I going to do service? Am I going to actually go and do something for somebody that way? Or am I going to do advocacy? Am I going to represent people that can't represent themselves? Like the old and the poor and the sick that are getting screwed by our new economy? Am I going to help them? People in third world country who can't cry for themselves, speak up. Am I going to take direct action like a sit-in or a civil disobedience? I'm having these dialogues with Dan Ellsberg in which we're dialoguing about things like civil disobedience, acts. And what helps? And how do you know? How do you begin to assess the issue? I just came from four days in Toronto at the Planetary Initiative meeting, reflecting about, of all the different ways, economic, political, social, ecological, psychological, where do, you, where do you put the finger in? Where's the judo move that changes the game, that creates another kind of consciousness, a collective consciousness into which everybody can climb, in which there is less suffering? What you can hear me doing today, I'm just, at least this thus far, I'm just pointing out the nature of the issues that have emerged around helping in a society like the one we live in for us these days. And I'm wanting to touch each of you in some way that you say, yeah, I recognize that. That's familiar to me. Because I think most of these are familiar to most of us. And it's extremely hard to find good models of conscious helping. They're not newsworthy. I don't receive them in the news. I don't see big, I don't see Dan Rather talking about compassion. I don't remember in my education, other than in the most sentimental way, Serving or helping, being explored or cared about. It wasn't cared about nearly like achievement and competition. So where do you stick your finger in? Do you do it in education? It's an interesting one to start with. Where do you make a difference? And how much of our civic life cultivates these kinds of qualities? Once you're involved in helping, then you start to fall into what we have come to call helper's prison. Helper's prison means there's a helper and a helped. And there is a considerable distance between the two of them. And if you're a helper, you may have a credential, you may have expertise, you may have know-how, you may have titles and positions and functions, you may have a uniform. All of which, when somebody walks into your office, your room, when you meet them, they know you're a helper. And that makes them the help. When people say to me, should I get psychotherapy? I said, just get a... What kind of a therapist should I get? I said, make sure you get one that doesn't think they're a therapist. Because if they think they're a therapist, you've got to be a patient. And you and I can fulfill the role of therapist and patient, but let's not get stuck in it. Because if we get stuck in it, we both end up in prison. And I remember to my horror and shame when I was a psychoanalytic therapist in bygone days, 
needing my patients to need me so badly that when they started to get better, I was very punitive because they weren't going to need me anymore. Now, that's only one of the psychological motives for which we do helping. And many of them are motives which we are not necessarily morally comfortable with. But they are what is. Because we are human beings and we have, as Buddha pointed out, at least subtle doses of greed, lust, agitation, fear, doubt, sloth, and torpor. We know that a lot of us help for intimacy. It gets us very close to people. You go home and you're alone all the time, and then you go to the office and somebody needs you, and it, it's a very intimate relationship. Very often it's vicarious sexual kinds of gratification, of fantasies while you're working with somebody. I'm just giving you my own list. You may have your own. about helping for guilt? Because you... I was with this guy in Texas. He lives in a house with nine dogs. About a quarter of a mile away on his land, his wife lives. And I was sitting with him in his Rolls Royce, driving over the backwood roads of his 3,000-acre ranch. He had his hat pulled down over his eyes, brim up, wearing work boots, driving his Rolls Royce, old silver, you know, cloud or whatever that is. Big, long hood. It's longer than my car. The hood is longer than my car. And he was driving along, and I was, he's a guy, let me describe the kind of helping. He's in AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. And so he wanted to set up an AA chapter in the towns around where he lived. So he went to each town, and he would rent a room and get the undertaker to bring some chairs in, and he would set up a coffee urn and have a meeting. And in one town he went to, he set up the coffee urn and brought the chairs, and he brought it on Monday night, and he announced it, and nobody came. So the next Monday night he came, and he rented the chairs, and he made the coffee, and he sat there, and nobody came. For six months, every Monday night, he went to this place, he made the coffee, he set up the chairs, and nobody came until the first person came. And he's always visiting people in, in hospitals. So I said to him, Don, why do you do all this stuff? Because I was interviewing for my motivation chapter in the book. <laughs> Don, why do you do all this stuff? He's driving his Rolls Royce with his hat pulled down. And he's looking, I'm looking at him. He's like, Guilt. <laughs> that was the whole interview. That's it. <laughs> hmm. Which links very close to the issue of righteousness. See, it's like I am really no good. I mean, if you knew about me, you'd agree. I've known it from the very beginning. But if I do good, you might allow me to exist. That's the constant parental, oh, you're such a good boy, you cleaned up your room, you did this, you did that, you've done good, so you get love. You know do good, you know get love. It's known as conditional love training. The child psychologist who warms my heart to say things like this. Know that that wasn't all a waste, all that neurosis about my doctoral dissertation in oral. And in a way, the part of the cruelty of the world is comes out of righteous helping. Because when you get into good and evil, you really start to punish people who don't want to play your way. Righteousness is very heavy duty, and let's, let's really start to apply our perceptual shift later to the issue of righteousness.
Then there's the issue of money. If you're helping somebody and you charge them, is it different? Need it be? Why is it? If you're helping somebody, do you have a right to be helped in the bargain? Or is it not pure helping? If you're a volunteer and somebody else is being paid, have you got an edge up? Are you closer to God? And when you have to help every day for eight hours a day, whichever your role, how do you deal with boredom, meaninglessness, energy being drained, and that culturally hip word, burnout? I was helping and I really cared and now I just can't do it anymore. I just had it. Burned out. We now have burnout clinics for helpers. Not bizarre? Not bizarre? I mean, it's bizarre at some level. It's real, but it's bizarre, isn't it? Relatively real. Or you started out to do something for one motive, and then a little while later, that motive isn't relevant anymore. You did it because you needed intimacy, and then you end up with a nice relationship at home, and you don't need that anymore, and the reason for doing the helping is changed, and now what's going to happen? Something new going to come out of it? Are you going to grow? Are you just going to be bored? Are you going to be stuck in it? Are you going to get out? What are you going to do? How do you deal with those? that particular thing? Then the one I keep finding is what's known as professional warmth. I mean, you, can you as a human being keep your heart open to all the suffering you see, especially if you're a professional healer? Or finally, do you just close down a little bit and get very concerned in a certain kind of a way, but it doesn't wipe you out? That's what doctors and nurses so often get stuck in, is professional warmth. And I've gotten in it myself, especially because all the time your heart isn't wide open. But yet you've got to meet somebody at 8 o'clock and there they are and they need your heart and your heart doesn't open and so you appear as if your heart is open. And it creeps you. It freaks me. I know that. I can't stand it. What am I offering the person? Hypocrisy. And if you take, say, a doctor... Like I spoke at Grand Rounds in uh, San Francisco at one of the big hospitals there. And um, I said to the doctors and other people that were there, I said, you, you know, you people are charged with helping to keep people alive. And yet, you know what? Some people die, even for you, even with your intensive care wards and your technology. And because for you, death is the enemy, every time somebody dies, you lost. And finally, you can't handle losing, or opening yourself to that possibility of loss all the time. So you end up protecting yourself. You close down in order to be functional in this role. But you can't be wiped out every time somebody dies. You wouldn't be able to stand it. But you close down and then you think you can go home at 5 o'clock and open up. So your marriage suffers, your children suffer, the whole thing starts to suffer. And the question now is, what are you contributing to the world? At one level, at the same moment, you're doing everything you can to heal. And it's because you can't accept the fact that death is part of life and that these are just like the trees have green leaves and then the leaves turn colors and the leaves drop off and then there is winter and then there is spring and then there is summer and on it goes. And that's the way of things. And when you pit yourself against the way of things, 
you better expect it's going to cost. And can you understand, I say to them, what it means to do your work effectively without getting attached to whether or not what you do works? Assessing it, thinking about it, noticing it, but not getting attached to it. Allowing God to play, too. See, many of us get into helping relationships where we try to help and the helping doesn't work and we end up judging God. We say, you screwed up. If I were you, I wouldn't have made this person suffer this much. Which is a certain kind of chutzpah from where I'm sitting. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you. Thank you.